0: The number of people who work in a venture can vary wildly, depending on the size, type, and stage of the venture. Now, a venture, we know that it typically refers to a startup company or a new business initiative that is seeking to grow and achieve significant returns. The number of employees in a venture can range from just a few founders or early team members to hundreds or even thousands of employees as the venture scales. Kyle, what's it like working in venture? What excites you about the field?
1: The thing I love about venture capital is the opportunity to be able to be a resource for people that are building at the cutting edge. That's my number one goal is to not you know, present myself as the person in the seat, driving the ship, trying to build the plane as we fly it. But the person who can bring the resources to bear to help those people accomplish what they're trying to achieve. That's my favorite part about venture capital.
0: Okay. And when you say like be a resource... What can we envision by that? What sort of resource are you? Are you providing emotional support, financial support? Obviously, what are you as a resource?
1: Yeah, I'd love to say all of the above. Certainly, Mm -hmm. every VC thinks of themselves as spiking in very different areas. Contrary, our focus is on being a resource for people to be able to access talent. And so a lot of what we do is companies, as they're building their early team, they want to hire really exceptional engineers, product designers, product managers, things like that. Contrary has a network of 500 plus folks that we stay very close to. And we help companies hire from that talent network. So in addition to trying to be an emotional support and and all these other things and providing capital, we also want to let people access our talent network to build other teams.
0: It's such an interesting word though, isn't it? Talent. Like, what is talent? How are you defined in talent? How are you measuring that?
1: So we think about the folks that we have in our talent community, as specifically people who have demonstrated slope in their career. So they're trying to accomplish a lot of different things. and They've been successful in a lot of different areas. But beyond that, it's really trying to match the best people with the best companies. So it can mean a lot of very different things for different companies. But depending on what a company is looking for, for example, as we invest in AI and ML companies, they're often looking for people with both academic rigor and exposure to sort of the latest thinking and frameworks and architecture, but also people with practical capabilities and building models and fine tuning these systems and things like that. So it's finding the people that have the skills that match the company. So our job is just to find as many exceptional people as we can, and then map those to companies that are a good fit for their background.
0: So hi, everyone. It's Lauren Hawker-Zaffer. Welcome back to Redefining AI, the tech podcast. Today, I've been joined by Kyle Harrison. He's a general partner at Contrary, where he leads Series A and growth stage investing. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks for having me. So we have sort of discussed and established at the start that you're an experienced investor and that you're a GP at Contrary Capital, Kyle. If we look at maybe the evolution or what you have witnessed in the landscape of AI over the last year from an investment perspective, what types of investments are being made and where are they being made and in your opinion, why?
1: So definitely the hypiest, kind of most fervor in the investment landscape has definitely gone to companies building foundation models. So that's very much the OpenAI, Anthropic, Cohere, companies like that. That's probably sucked up the most capital and most excitement and most attention. But another area that has been pretty active and I think is a pretty important part of the ecosystem is around things like ML ops and orchestration and different things to be able to allow people to put this technology into production. That is definitely a a big area of investment and excitement that people are... And I think that a big part of that is driven by, you know, you have all this excitement about what the technology is capable of, but that has raced far ahead of the capabilities to deploy that technology. And so what's filling the gap are companies coming along and saying, Hey, we can help you bridge that gap. You may not have the expertise internally to be able to do these things. We can help you put these models into production.
0: And do you think that there's enough talent to be able to feed those requirements in the sense of there's enough talent for companies to be able to build these foundational models, to develop MLOps cycles, to sort of twing together all the orchestration capabilities to ensure that it can be offered?
1: Yeah, I think candidly, the to, as of today, the answer is no. That there's not enough uh, talent to be able to effectively leverage these systems. I was just reading a, an article today about how Netflix has a job posting out for a, I think it was a product manager for some ML products, and the the salary was nine hundred thousand dollars for Netflix, which is not, you know, maybe not a traditional AI company per se, but they're they have a use case, and there's a bunch of other companies that are very similar, paying kind of top dollar. to to try and find these folks because the reality is there's just a massive talent shortage. But I think that creates an opportunity for startups who are trying to enable companies to leverage these systems is they can say, hey, you're just not going to be able to compete with the Googles and the Microsofts and the OpenAIs for talent, but our product can replace what you might need six people to do, our product you can do with one. Like that. That is a big opportunity for companies.
0: And is that what you're encouraging people to do at the moment? in product development and the implementation of products that can sort of glue that gap together.
1: So I'd say most of our companies are... you know, The companies we've invested in, they are early enough in their life that they're pretty scrappy. And so just naturally, they're already going to do that, right? Most startups are not throwing people at problems. They're trying to find the most efficient way to do things. And so if they can find a orchestration tool that helps them put a model into production, that's great and they will do that. I think it's the larger companies that are having a harder time adjusting to this stuff that are probably would love to throw people at the problem, and can't because there's just a shortage of talent. And so they have to start going and looking for solutions. But again, when I invest, and in, when I look at investing in a company that's building in this space, the thing that I'm focused on is understanding, do they have the technical capabilities that they need internally? Or if not, do they have the systems in place that can allow them to take advantage of, kind of the latest technology?
0: If we look at the technical capabilities, do you now think that the evolution of where AI stands, especially with the explosion or the mainstream attraction around like generative AI, that it's now in a space that the technical capabilities are now rocketing the innovation or the advancement and where startups are as well?
1: You know, what's interesting is, so I I did a Podcast a few weeks ago with uh, Aiden Gomez, who's the CEO of Cohere, uh, a company that competes with OpenAI and Anthropic, mm-hmm. and he, and he made a comment. I mean, he was one of the original authors of the Google paper that introduced the transformer architecture, so a pretty important piece of this kind of boom that we've experienced over the last few years. And he made a really interesting comment where he said, you know, most of us feel like we've kind of been standing in this same spot, and the world suddenly caught up. And so I don't, I don't even know that I look at it as there has been this like rapid sort of rocket ship of progress per se, like there's certainly been a ton of progress, but it hasn't been this like in a moment, everything technologically leapt forward. It was that we have made these incremental improvements to the ways that we're doing things, but suddenly it became everyone, it sort of came to everyone's attention. And so I think the, where we're at in the cycle right now is actually, it has a little bit less to do with innovation per se, like certainly there's still progress being made and people are still making breakthroughs. But I think it's less about, you know, oh, there's this, there's going to be this step function change that occurs. We've, we kind of already have that. Now the challenge is how do you effectively distribute that? Whether it's into incumbent platforms like Microsoft or even things like, you know, Canva or whatever that are leveraging this technology internally, how do those incumbents distribute it? Or as startups, how do you take advantage of that, of what's out there and then get it into the hands of people who could get the most value out of it
0: how important is innovation though when you're looking at it from an investment perspective because obviously if we're talking about the cycle and obviously it's been a slow development in maybe incremental stages there is also that part of the cycle if you look from maybe another angle of the mimicry that goes on so you see a lot of startups that are possibly like copying each other to a certain extent like from an investment perspective How do you recognize the potential that a startup might have Out with the three things that you maybe listed at the start?
1: Yeah. So the equation that most people kind of use or the framework that people use to think about where good investments exist is basically a function of value creation and value capture. And value creation is a lot of where the innovation happens, where you've created something that can create value for a lot of different people. And there are a lot of models that have been built, you know, stable diffusion being one of them, that a ton of folks have gotten a lot of value out of. Then the question is, is there a mechanism to capture that value, which is effectively just your business model? Do you have a good business model to capture value? And there are some of these products that have not demonstrated a really exceptional business model. And so it's not as easy for them to capture the value that they're creating. And so what I look for is not necessarily just has value been created, because there's a lot of innovation that creates value. Value, but also, is there a business model that can capture that value? And you're trying to find a combination of those things. And that typically leads to much better investments.
0: And what would be an example, though, of is there a business model that can capture this value? Can you give us an example?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of our companies that we've invested in, and I'm, I'm sure we can talk a little bit more about, but I, I co-wrote this deep dive on the openness of AI with them, at yeah. a company called Nomic, you know, one of our investments. Then the reason we made the investment is because I think it demonstrates this very well, where value creation happens because what Nomic has done has created a tool called Atlas, which is basically a data visualization tool to understand and fine-tune large language models. So you can kind of visualize the entire data set that a model is trained on. And by doing that they were able to create things like GPT for all, which is sort of a pared down language model that is as performant as GPT 3.5, but at a fraction of the compute resources and so you can run it on a machine locally. And they were able to do that with their tool. So they created a lot of value where, hey, we have this model, it's much easier to use. It's, you know, people like healthcare and financial services and government, they feel more comfortable using it because they can use it locally. You don't have to rely on somebody else's server. All of that is great, but Nomix not charging for GPT for all, it's open source, right? So that's an example of value creation. And then the, the question is, how do you capture that value? And people look at that and they say, wow, Nomic was able to create GPT for All using Atlas, this data visualization tool that they charge for and is a traditional software product. And people say, man, I'd love to be able to do that with other models or to be able to build my own models that I can use locally. And so they want to go and pay for Atlas as a product. And so that's a business model that captures value because it attracts, that sort of top of funnel mm. attracts people to a software product that they can then charge for and monetize.
0: And do you give advice on that as well? Like if a venture was struggling to identify a business model that could encapture maybe value that they've created, do you provide services that would support the development of a coherent and hopefully profitable one?
1: Yeah, I, I think that it is less, you know, as VCs, I think we typically think of ourselves less as, the sort of like consultant or service provider or like pointing people in a particular direction. I think what we're trying to do is identify those things that already exist. Like, is that mechanism already there? And if it is, or if there's the opportunity for that, Then we want to invest. So I think it's more a function of like I look to identify that, but I see that in a lot of the companies that we invest in, where the sort of value creation is often being good at something else. It's often even not necessarily like an AI capability exclusively. So another one of our investments is in a company called Replit, which is a IDE, so a development, you know, a coding environment. And what they do really well is they take all of the things you could possibly need as a developer and put it in one environment to make it very easy for you to build software. One of the things that they have is Ghostwriter, which is their code assistant AI. They're able to leverage AI to create value for people. And that's awesome. But what people are paying for is not this AI tool because they, they can get that tool from a lot of different places, not the least of which is GitHub's copilot, right? mm-hmm, yeah, which, is so. a, which, mm-hmm. which is a competitor, but that they can create value by putting everything into one place. And that allows them to charge for that because people say, man, well, I'd love to have everything in one place rather than having to go pay for 20 plus different tools. And so a lot of times what we're trying to do as investors is identify where that sort of value creation and value capture relationship already exists or very soon could exist. Hopefully we get there maybe a little early and then are able to invest in helping them create that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems that we're on a trajectory of these, this hyper-personalization, this accessibility to hyper-personalization of not going out with, but staying within some sort of containerized opportunity that's supported by AI. You mentioned before that you were part of the and team who wrote the report, The Openness of AI. Can you provide us in that respect with maybe a brief overview of the the key findings and insights from that report? And maybe as well, like how it sheds light in particular on the accessibility and democratization of AI technology.
1: Yeah, so we produced the report as part of Contrary Research, which is the research arm of our firm. And one of the things that Contrary Research does a pretty good job of is creating this engine to take expertise and, and sort of engage with the expertise of other people. So huge credit to Brandon and Andre who are at Nomic, because basically what we did would work with them to understand their perspective on the space, and then to capture that into something that's consumable for everyone to read. And so it was a lot of fun to be able to dig in with them on what they understood of the space. But in the report, what we focused on on, we're sort of unpacking a lot of the biggest players in AI right now right so you have whether it's Microsoft or Google on the sort of large end OpenAI Anthropic what have you and and specifically how increasingly these folks are focused on becoming quite powerful they might not say it that way but there's a real emphasis in trying to centralize as much power and influence over this space as possible And Clem DeLang, who's the CEO of Hugging Face, has said that the greatest danger in AI right now is this concentration of power. And so in the report, we really focused on what are the implications of that centralization and how there can be a better way than rather than having sort of one sort of winner take all environment where it's a Microsoft OpenAI universe and you're sort of dependent on their however they want to do things. There's really this hope that there are lots of ways to push the space forward and make progress and lots of different products that can be specialized in different areas and how that actually leads to better results as opposed to kind of being dependent on one monopoly player. Do
0: you think it's possible, though, to avoid this centralization?
1: I do think it's possible not only because of I mean I think there's two buckets of that equation. One is a market uh, is a market driver and one is a philosophical driver. So from a market perspective which I think is is honestly much more powerful like the sort of the dollar is much more powerful than the dogma, right? But on the market side, I think that the driver will be people don't like to have platform risk. They don't like to be completely dependent on one provider, which is why even in cloud computing, which is a big, big component of this whole equation, people don't like to be single cloud. They want to be multi-cloud because they want to have some sort of control over what they're dependent on and when and why and have some fail safes and things like that. So I think just from a market perspective, people are not gonna want to have one system. And in addition to that, they're also not going to want to be forced to send all of their data to OpenAI's server, for example, right, or whatever. And so people wanna have those, those semblance of control and they're willing to pay for that. And so a lot of companies will emerge and say, hey, we can help you use us, but we'll play nicely with others and things like that. So I think the market will, will force some of that behavior. And then I think philosophically, people are also concerned because especially with something like a large language model, because it has pretty deep ramifications. Once you start relying pretty heavily on a model, say like ChatGPT, that can actually have significant influence even more powerfully than, for example, like Facebook. Facebook had a really significant influence on how people thought about the world around them and how they consumed news. And that was sort of just algorithmically deciding what they read, like showing them what they read. ChatGPT can actually like formulate the way that people think because of the answers that they're getting and how dependent they are and things like that. And so people philosophically, they don't want to have one, you know, monolithic brain deciding how everybody gets information.
0: Very insightful input. And I don't disagree or or certainly align 100% in agreement with, with- one particular component of what you've said. I think that it's interesting that you've displayed two different sides of the equation, obviously the market perspective and the philosophical perspective. One question would be, you know, which is more conscious as well? Like if you've got the market perspective that's maybe leading people's decision less than the philosophical perspective and what plays into that as well? I mean, is it one industry that's contributing and leading to the market perspective or the philosophical perspective? And also, what you've interestedly brought into the discussion is the whole desire to go multi-cloud. Like where in if we look at maybe geographical components that align with that, is everyone at the same stance of that journey? Or are they misaligned in terms of, you know, market perspective, philosophical perspective, and also their journey in their own cloud? which, as you've mentioned, is a huge component of this discussion, the integration, the intersection of AI and the cloud. That was quite a lot of questions, big questions. Yeah.
1: Well, I think the way that I unpack it, it is certainly multifaceted, but I think about a quote from Charlie Munger where he says, effectively, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome, right? Help me understand who's incentivized towards what. And that will dictate how, what they and ultimately end up doing. And so I certainly don't think it's, it's sort of uniform. You know, there's one industry that makes it will sort of drive all the changing forces or whatever. Part of that is because AI, while we talk about it like it is an industry. AI is as ubiquitous as SaaS, right? Software as a service. It, mm-hmm. It's a it's a mechanism that is going to impact everything. It's the same way where people used to say, hey, I invest in internet companies. And it's like, what does that mean in internet? Every company is on the internet. Every company is leveraging the internet somehow, right? And so it doesn't really mean anything anymore. So internet, SaaS, AI, these things become very ubiquitous. And so I think that one of the things that will make everyone a participant in this discussion is the ubiquity of AIs. Everybody is impacted by it. So that's, that's thing number one. And then thing number two, when you start talking about financial incentives, I think that you have two dueling incentives. On the one hand, you have the companies who are very highly incentivized to make sure that as much of the compute in AI and in AI use cases runs through their servers as possible, which is my why Microsoft invested 10 plus billion dollars in OpenAI is because they want as much of this to happen on Azure as possible. It's the same thing with Google investing in Anthropic. They want as much of this to happen on GCP as possible. And so there's this one side of the universe that's very incentivized on trying to sort of, you know, cobble together as much compute into their business as possible because that's more revenue for them. And then on the other side, you have folks who are much more focused on making sure that they have the most performant product as possible. And so I had put Meta or Facebook in that bucket. And you see that demonstrated in the way that Meta released Llama, which is their foundation model, which is open source. They just recently released Llama 2, which is available for commercial use. And the reason that those companies exist on different ends of the spectrum is because Meta does not have a cloud computing business. And so they're not incentivized to make sure as much of this is in one place as possible. Mm -hmm. They just want their products to be as good as possible. And so if they release a performant foundation model to the world, and people build on top of that and improve it and create use cases that are more performant that Meta can bring into their own product, their product gets better. And that's better for everyone. It's better for them. It's better for their users. It's better across the board. And I think that the vast majority, if you think about it, the vast majority of businesses on earth do not have a cloud computing business. And so the vast majority of companies just want their products to be as good as they possibly can be. And monopolies never lead to the best products. And so the vast majority of companies, of countries, of industries are going to be pushing for what allows me to have the best product. And being dependent on Microsoft, and they can do whatever they want because they're the only game in town, does not lead to me having better products.
0: Mm. I mean, you mentioned as well the open source component of AI. And you know, there is that debate over open source AI and AI safety. It's one of the central themes that also appear in your report. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more in that respect on, you know, the different perspectives within the industry? I mean, we've touched upon it there, but also in how much they impacted the the development and deployment of, of AI technologies.
1: Yeah. So I think that and I am always careful because I don't I don't want to downplay that there are certainly risks of the technology but I think that many of the risks and we touched on this in the report many of the risks around AI that people discuss Are dramatically overblown. Right. There are very, there's there's a lot of risks where, you know, people kind of joke that a large language model at its core is effectively autocomplete on on steroids, right? It's it's sort of a massive thing that's guessing what the most logical next word is. And so to say that, you know, this is going to take over the world or destroy humanity is a pretty far cry from what's actually going on. But a lot of people like to spend time thinking about that. And there's a really good conversation that, so Clem at Hugging Face and then Amjad Massad, who's the CEO of Replit, they had at a conference called Cerebral Valley where they, t- they unpacked all of this. They talked about how Microsoft is really sort of pumping up the marketing around these risks because it just draws more attention to the conversation. When in reality, a lot of the problems, a lot of the most like poignant AI safety issues that are facing the world today right now have very little to do with sort of extinction level events and much more to do with things like disinformation and you know content moderation and things like that. And those issues get swept under the rug when you focus on such bigger risk, which allow companies, because effectively when companies like OpenAI decide to release dramatically less context around models like GPT-4, that actually makes it easier to hide things like inherent biases that exist in a model, for example, because you can't understand what the training data or what that training set is or those weights are or anything like that. And so those, those actual issues get exacerbated while people focus on these really big problems. And so in my mind, the thing that I... You know, focus on and pay quite a bit of attention to and thinking about in AI safety is more so. I actually think it gets better when you are more open, when more people are trying to understand the biases and potential risks and things like that. And one of the sort of counter arguments that people make is, well, what about bad actors? You know, if we, if we make these models open, bad actors can get access to those and, you know, Different countries can use them to influence selections and things like that and, and you do that even more effectively. And I think that, that is that's fair to say, but I think that's also somewhat inevitable, right? Is that every for the most part, every piece of technology has eventually become widely distributed. And the thing that that sort of acts as a counterbalance to that distributed technology for good or for evil is how well prepared the long tail is to defend themselves is that the more distributed that technology is you basically get into this sort of almost like a you know cold war standoff if everybody's capable then it's less of a risk if sort of a centralized group of folks are protected, like these big companies, and a bad actor gets access to it, every other smaller company or smaller nation is more at risk because they don't have the technology to defend themselves. Because sort of, you know, a big company over here is saying, Hey, we want to make sure that those folks are having to pay us to protect themselves. And that, that actually makes the world less safe.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I suppose it goes back to what you're talking about in the emphasis of the importance of making AI accessible to everyone, regardless of factors like, you know, cost, geography or political affiliations. I mean, if we look as well at the two of the most poignant risks that you mentioned that are a lot of the time swept under the rug, the disinformation, you know, the necessity for stricter content moderation, Who? is it that needs to educate themselves better? And how can people educate themselves better? Like if you're not a technologist, if you're not immersed in the scene and you don't understand the consequences of the inherent biases that are produced by the models, how can you educate yourself? What would you advise listeners to do?
1: Well, I think that the unfortunate reality is that technology is getting better and better. And so I think it is more so a function of platforms and governments' responsibility to be better prepared to manage their own platforms. I think it's really tough to say we should have a course that everyone on earth has to take. And by taking that course, they will recognize, you know things that have been created by ai or things that are create you know disinformation or whatever i think it's really tough because there's so many there's such a such a massive diverse population of people with different backgrounds and experiences and levels of education and everything and it's really really difficult to say if you just do this you will be more prepared i think that increasingly and this is one of the things that you know for a long time at least in the us And I think this is true in other countries as well. They have similar laws. But in other countries, platforms like Facebook were protected by certain provisions where they weren't able to be held liable for the content on their platform. And those laws are increasingly changing because they're basically saying, listen, Facebook has a responsibility to understand and control and moderate the content on their platform. And so Facebook, rather than being able to seed responsibility and say, Hey, like people are doing stuff and we're just trying to make sure it falls within these parameters and then everything else is free game. Now they are more responsible for the claims that are made on their platform. And if that means that they have to sort of pare back what people can and can't do and whatever, like those levels of controls need to be in place for those platforms to more effectively govern themselves. I think I'm more focused on those things need to happen is more, more platforms need to be capable of understanding what's going on and sort of managing it more effectively, as opposed to saying, oh, each person is responsible mm-hmm. for educating themselves because it's just really difficult to do with how effective technology is.
0: If we sort of circle back to close our conversation to investment and investment from the perspective of an individual listener? Because obviously people are curious. You've mentioned, you know, that technology is offering a lot of opportunity. It's changing. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of interest in startups. If someone was curious about investing in that market and also potential investment that would provide return in the future, what would be your advice from that from that angle?
1: Yeah. So I'd say there's sort of two buckets of thinking that I revisit most often. One is a little bit of an unpacked version of the framework we talked about earlier, where there's sort of this value creation and value capture. Mm -hmm. The way that I think about that specifically in this market in AI is I look for for sort of three key things, right? So the first one is a really strong community element, because I think communities are a very powerful indicator of successful technology. You're basically looking for where are smart people congregating and contributing And paying attention to? So where is that sort of community of thinkers? And the second is trying to understand meaningful top of funnel traction. It's not always open source, but often it is, right? Where you're looking for things like, you know, something as simple as GitHub stars, where there's a lot of people paying attention to this specific repo or contributing to it or whatever. But what you're trying to see is not just, hey, have you been able to attract attention? Because really, when you think about it, it's like, well, what is a community? It's like, well, Taylor Swift's uh, Instagram following. That's kind of a community, right? Okay, but are they, is there actual traction to that? Like, what are they doing? And it's like, oh, well, that translates into ticket sales for Taylor Swift concerts, right? Or whatever. It's the same thing with open source: is You're not just looking for where people are congregating, but where are they actually congregating that translates into specific activities. But then the third piece of it goes back. To, so those are sort of two, if I were to unpack value creation, those are two elements. is If you're creating value, people will sort of gather around you and often want to be involved. So that's value creation unpacked. Value capture is really looking for specifically, like effectively a genuine product, right? Something that can be monetized and sold like traditional software. And where I get really hesitant is when I look at something that has a lot of open source traction, but no clear business model. There's no real clear way to capture value. So that sort of three pronged bucket is one thing I think about a lot when I'm evaluating what are interesting investments. But then the second that I would pay very close attention to is that any investment, like how good an investment is, is relative to the potential outcome. It's not, so if I say, you know, hey, you can invest in this thing and it might increase by a hundred X. Like if I say, hey, it's a million dollars, you have to pay a million dollars for this investment but it could be a hundred X investment. A million dollars could be cheap for a hundred X, right? But if you say it's a million dollar investment and your return is 0.8 X, it's like actually gonna lose a little money. It's like, well, that's a terrible investment. Like a million dollars is too expensive, right? So it's all dependent on the size of the outcome. And a lot of people get very distracted because they look at things like OpenAI and they say, oh, if OpenAI can be a 30 plus billion dollar company, any AI company can be a 30 billion dollar company. And in reality, OpenAI is playing a fundamentally different game that makes it effectively an irrelevant comparison because number one, they have massive corporate ties to Microsoft. And number two, they are trying to build a foundation model that everyone will use for every purpose. Not every company is like that. If you're looking at a wrapper around ChatGPT that does a very specific thing, or if you're looking for an orchestration tool that can do something, it doesn't mean that it can have the same potential as OpenAI. And so it's actually damaging to think, oh, this could be a $30 billion company. And so with every investment, you really have to consider what could the eventual outcome of this company be? And what does that mean for my investment?
0: What could the eventual outcome be? Interesting. Fascinating insights, Kyle. I um, really enjoyed the conversation today. So I'd like to thank you hugely for contributing to what we're exploring and discovering today on Redefining AI.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. I'd like to thank everyone else that's listening today. And if you'd like to find out more about machine learning, search and insight engines, then go to the Squirrel Academy at learn.squirrel.com. Thank you.